and welcome to Wonder Girl on a show where we dig into questions about agriculture and try to understand how food production impacts us and our world. My name is Hallie Casey, and I studied and currently work in agriculture. And this week, we have another Catherine episode. Hi, everybody. I am Catherine. I do not work in agriculture, but I do produce this podcast. And normally, we pick one question that we want Hallie to answer that confuses a lot of people. But this week, we have a lot of little questions on one big topic, which is processed foods. So when Catherine asked me, she basically asked me, like, what is processed food? Is any food not processed? And this, like, blew my mind, this question, because I didn't realize that was something that people didn't know. And then I felt stupid for not realizing that people don't know that. So Yeah, and I felt stupid for being, you know, an adult with an office job (laughs) and bills who grocery shops every week and does not know what processed food is. All around stupid day on the pod, I guess, which is good because we're going to start from a place of learning. Yeah, which is, you know, you should never feel stupid. I'm going to soapbox here for a moment, but you should never feel (laughs) stupid about not knowing something because when you don't know something, that's just a learning opportunity that presented itself to you. Very good point. A very good point. Thank you. Okay. So what do you, what do you want to know about processed food? What is your question? Um, so my first question is what is processed food? Okay. Sounds good. Let's start from square one. Let's go for it. Okay. (laughs) So. The very loose definition of processed food is basically any food that goes through a process that changes the physical structure or the fundamental taste or the chemistry of the food. Mm-hmm. So this can be like pickling things. This can be like grinding wheat. This can be like cooking a tomato. Um, all these things are processing your food. So that's what I'm a little confused about is that I feel like Everything goes through some kind of process, um, you know, unless you're just like wandering the fields, picking up plants and eating them. Hey, don't knock it. I mean, no, I would love to do that. I live in Chicago. Most of the plants <laughs> I see, I do not want to eat. Um, but, you know, I can't take a bite out of a chicken. Most of the time when I eat vegetables. You could. I mean, I could take a bite out of a chicken. It would not taste good. You're just bringing a lot of negativity. It's like, I can't walk through the fields and eat the food. I can't bite the chicken. (laughs) All these things you can do. You're just, I guess you don't want to bite the chicken. Let me rephrase this. In my normal life (laughs) of living in Chicago, number one, there are no chickens Mm -hmm. around for me to bite. I have not seen a chicken since I moved to Chicago. I I do want to clarify... I, I, as a professional in the agricultural industry, I really do not recommend biting chickens. I want to make that clear. I don't think I would enjoy it. The chicken wouldn't enjoy it. The chicken might bite me. <laughs> this is not a good idea. Not biting chickens. Okay. Agreed. I'm, I'm totally fine with that. <laughs> but sorry, to get back to my original point, I feel like everything goes through some kind of process between it growing in the ground and it being on my plate. And so where is the line between what sure. is processed and what is not? Sure. Okay. Um, yeah, that's a good question. So typically when we think of things that aren't processed, we'll call them raw. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are things like when you think of like an apple mm-hmm. or like an artichoke, those look fairly identical to what grows on the plant. And 
like we talked about in our food waste episode, yeah, they do go through a process. They go through a post-harvest process where they're chilled or they're frozen or there's gases pumped around them or, you know, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, the fundamental chemistry of the food doesn't change. The taste of the food doesn't change. They're still, you know, what we think of as raw. Mm -hmm. Um, And this also includes other things like you can have raw milk. A lot of eggs that you buy in places that are not America are raw foods. Um, and still the eggs that you buy in America are fairly raw. Wait, um, hold up. I'm going to can... need you to go into depth because when I buy an egg from the grocery store, I assume it's raw. Are they cooked when I buy them from the grocery <laughs> store? <laughs> no, sorry. That is confusing. Um, so when, when I'm saying the word raw, I mean like not processed. Okay. Um, and the eggs that we buy in America go through a process which basically makes them not shelf stable anymore. There's like a special chemical that the chicken insides put onto the egg that makes them pretty shelf stable and they can last a really long time. Thanks, but in America, we take that chemical off so that we have sous refrigerator eggs. Oh no. But they're still like, they're still pretty raw. Like they're v- not really that processed, but that chemical isn't on them because it kind it, theoretically makes them more food safe. I don't know all the science behind eggs. That's the idea. Anyways, yeah, so eggs, milk, things like uh, raw veggies, raw fruit, um, also things like just like a chicken breast is also fairly raw. Mm-hmm. It can, you know, depend on who you talk to, what definition of processed food you use, and what chicken you're buying. But for the most part, like raw uncooked meat that's just like cut into pieces you pretty much just like skinned the animal, took the bones out, and then cut it up. Mm-hmm. It's like it's not that processed. Whereas if you like grind the meat, or if you like break down the meat, like they do with chicken nuggets or something like that, like chicken nuggets, you like basically like disassemble the like molecular structure of the chicken and then oh, wow. reassemble it into a nugget shape. Wow. So it's like it, that one's very processed. So it's kind of like an idea of the spectrum there. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Um. So why did we start? processing food like this? So we started for a couple of reasons. Um, One, it can make some foods edible that are not otherwise edible. So things like wheat, like we don't, you know, we don't really just eat wheat as like a seed. Um, But if we grind it and we make it into yummy bread or pancakes, then it's very edible and it's, you know, super filling. It has lots of good carbohydrates. So that's one reason, like that grinding of wheat is a process that we're putting the wheat through. It doesn't look the same as when it came off the plant. So that's one reason. Another reason is food storage. So since prehistoric times, people have been processing food in order to extend its shelf life. Oh, wow. So things like salt brining or drying, you know, which makes sense if you have like a huge thing of meat that you killed and you can't eat it all. So you dry some of it. So you have jerky later or if you have a bunch of fruits and then you dry them. For sure. And that's something Little House on the Prairie. My mom read us those books when I was a kid, and, like, they were always mm-hmm. drying meats and canning and that kind of stuff. Totally, totally. And people have been doing this since, like, prehistoric times. Oh, wow. Not necessarily canning, because canning's a bit more complicated, and that's a fairly new process, but fermenting, pickling, drying, like, all these things are, like, super-duper old. Wow, Okay. So they were – but those are, are, like, less processed. Like, you're not going to find, like, a prehistoric Twinkie, right? Yeah. So when we're talking about processed foods, there's kind of three levels of processing that we talk about. So there's primary food processing. Um, and this is typically something you can, like, do in your kitchen very easily. Mm-hmm. So this is things like cooking a tomato or, like, baking asparagus. 
these things don't necessarily like change the structure of the food you're cooking. It might change some of the chemistry or some of the taste, but it's like really simple cooking. Mm -hmm. And then you have secondary food processing, which is a bit more complicated. But again, for the most part, it doesn't it doesn't really change the nature of the food. So this can be turning cucumbers into pickles or like canning jams, um, you know, things things like this that are a bit more complicated that might require a special process or special equipment. But like you can still look at a pickle and be like, oh, yeah, that was a cucumber. Like I can I can see what that was. For sure. For sure. OK. So then you have tertiary food processing, which is like where the bad stuff kind of comes in, where like the bad reputation for like processed food mm -hmm. is from. And this is food that's typically like super unrecognizable as foods so, like Twizzlers or like Twinkies, chicken nuggets, where it's like. I don't really know what that was originally. It's like you can't look at a Twinkie and be like, oh, yeah, I see the wheat and sugar cane in this. Typically, like foods that go through tertiary food processing are high in sugar, high in salt, high in hydrogenated fats and other oils. They're typically considered fairly fattening, fairly unhealthful, like not not good for you. That's like it's like when we think of like the bad foods mm -hmm. that lead to like America's obesity problem and things like this, where we use processed as like a bad word. That's the kind of the level where that comes in. So it sounds like this tertiary processing is really bad. Why do we do it? And when did we start doing it? Oh, a good question. Okay. So we've been processing food forever, like I mentioned, mm -hmm. but this kind of tertiary food processing really came Wait for it. Because of the American military complex. Checks out. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, I mean, it's not just the necessarily the American military mm -hmm. complex. We've been using food processing innovations to, like, spur on military action for a really long time. Sure. There's a Napoleon quote about that. Oh, do you know it? Yeah. Um, An army marches on its stomach. There you go. Yeah. Thank you for that apt Napoleon quote. <laughs> Thanks, Napoleon. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it, it does for sure. I mean, you, you can't have like thousands of men marching. If they don't have anything to eat, like they won't go. <laughs> they won't for go sure. and also they might die. Yeah, we learned that with all the sieges of Russia. Great point. You're just bringing all this historical context that I, I don't know. Um, I just know that like... In the 1800s, military researchers invented a form of bottling, which then led to canning. And in the 20th century, with uh, World War II, the U.S. devoted a whole lot of resources to creating new kinds of food um, and new kinds of processed food. So that's where we got things like um, frozen meals, M&Ms, like all these things we got. Wait, so you're telling me... That these soldiers in World War II, they were just, like, chowing down on M&Ms, and that's why we have them. Oh, no, for sure. <laughs> that is crazy. I know. Isn't, oh it, isn't it wild? Wow. Yeah. For a long time, it was, like, not great to be a soldier, like, meal-wise. Like, you did not get a very good culinary experience as a soldier. <laughs> and then, like, the yeah. U.S. was, like, entering World War II, and they're like, but we're America, and we need to feed our soldiers right. And they want chocolate. And so, like... <laughs> They, like, got all of these researchers to, like, research all these ways where, like, how can we process this food so it can stay good, you know, wherever these these guys are going. Wait, um, mm -hmm. do you remember back when we were Girl Scouts and we did Operation Cookie where we sent the cookies to the soldiers overseas? Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember how we, we always sent them the cookies that didn't sell, so the not chocolate ones? Yeah. They, I remember somebody told me... It was like somebody's dad who was deployed said that they actually enjoyed those better because when you're in Iraq or Afghanistan mm -hmm. or Kuwait or wherever, you know, a Thin Mint was going to melt. But like sure. a, a 
shortbread it's not gonna melt is not gonna melt yeah, and that's why that's why M and M's were invented was because they wanted to put desserts in for these soldiers, but like all the chocolate stuff kept melting, so they invented this candy coating that like could withstand like super high temperatures. Wow! So the chocolate wouldn't melt, so they like would still have little like chocolate nugs. That is fascinating. And they they also invented um, frozen meals, which I think are called uh-huh. MREs. I think that's like the same thing as like a frozen meal. I don't Sounds really know right. that much about the military. Yeah, so so in World War II, this was developed by American military researchers, and then that led to, after the war in the 50s and 60s, the rise of what we call convenience food. So this is things mm-hmm. like frozen meals, like TV dinners, like meals in a box, all these, like, ready-made things that have kind of, like, reached new heights here in, like, the 2010s, where we have things mm-hmm. like pre-cut fruit and stuff like that. Um, that's, that's where it originated was in the U.S. military in World War II. Fun, fun Can little I bit of history. Can I say something about pre-cut fruit real quick? Yeah. Sorry. I just want to say, I don't want it to sound like we're saying that pre-cut food is necessarily bad because there are a lot of people with disabilities who cannot mm-hmm. cut their own fruit, um, due to motion impairedness. So just that little caveat. And we understand that pre-cut fruit is something that is necessary for a lot of people and we don't want to make it sound like it is an inherently bad thing. I think that's a great point. Yeah. Um, so I have a question real quick. Yeah, uh, we for talked sure. a lot about how it's kind of making food more accessible to people like soldiers. How mm. is this impacting people who live in food deserts? Oh, that's a great question. Um, and it's kind of a complicated answer. So I actually, I live adjacent to a food desert and I work in a food desert and it's kind of complicated because at, from what I've seen, since I work in the ag industry, we talk about this a fair amount. Mm-hmm. Processed foods kind of allow food deserts to occur, okay. which kind of has a pro side and a con side. So like before processed foods really happened, pretty much everyone in this area was a farmer. And now wow. that like we have this convenience food, this prepackaged food, this like straight up less healthy food... People are able to, like, become doctors and nurses and lawyers and, like, all these other things that build the economy and allow them upward mobility. But they're also, like, consuming much less healthy food. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's kind of like a, a funny paradox where these unhealthful foods allowed for people to rise up and, like, move economically. But then mm-hmm. also I don't want to I don't want to underplay this like they are. Like, it is an oppressive force to to people who have no other option but, like, food that will shorten their lifespan and that will, like, cause them a bunch of health complications because there's just not another affordable option nearby. For sure. So it's it's kind of like a complicated answer to the question because if if this processed food, like, were to disappear tomorrow, then folks would just not have food. And it would, like, mm-hmm. it wouldn't be a question of whether or not it's healthy. There would just, like, not be any food access. So that's kind of a complicated answer. For sure. Um, I have one follow-up question about that. Yeah. So you and I grew up in Central Texas. We did. Which, from what I've gathered from Marla's Texas history teacher and from her uh, work that she brings home, is that there really wasn't, um, prior to about the 1800s, there really wasn't a lot of food being produced in Central Texas because Mm -hmm. we don't have good soil and sometimes we just don't have water yeah uh, because of the drought cycle so how has processed food 
impacted places, places like Central Texas and then also places that are even more severe deserts, like, you know, Death Valley or places like that. Has that made it easier for people to live there because they can get food that they don't have to grow themselves? Yeah. I I mean, I want to be clear, like processed foods are one force that have been absolutely instrumental in the forming of urban centers. Like that, that is like an indisputable because if you think about it like how can you have one million people that don't grow food that like live in a place that's not productive it's because we can process our food and we can make it last a lot longer Um, and before we developed these like complex post-harvest systems that I talked about in the food waste episode where like we can make an apple last a year like you know, in the first part of the 20th century, we did not have that technology. And so the solution was like, make the apple into applesauce and then can it. And then it will last a year. Um, and so that, that food processing absolutely allowed that many people to one, like become unproductive food wise, like allowed that many people to not become farmers because we were able to make our food last longer. And then like farms were able to specialize and grow because of that, because like it wasn't just like a how many potatoes can you grow before they go bad and like you have to throw them out. So you put all that like money and time into growing these potatoes that you then weren't able to sell because there's like a flux in the market. For sure. For sure. Um, that's something we talked about. I was a business major, so that's something we talked about mm-hmm. in um, our economy classes was that kind of flux in the market. Totally. And I think, like, because mm-hmm. we now have food processing, people are able to get more healthful foods. Like, you can buy frozen blueberries, and blueberries are super healthy for you because they have a bunch of antioxidants, mm-hmm. which are, like, anti-carcinogenic. That's all, that all sounds great, except for if you only have access to fresh blueberries. It's like a much more limited amount of people that have access to that because you're probably in the Northeast and it's probably summertime when blueberries are fruiting. Whereas now, like anyone sure. can get them year round. So, so that's something else to think about. For sure. That's really interesting. Um, so we've talked a lot about processed foods being unhealthful. Mm-hmm. Is, uh, is it because of the added fats and sugars and salts or is there something in the process that makes it inherently unhealthful? Like, can you have a healthy processed food? Yeah. So that's a good question. Um, so generally across the board, the easy answer is that raw food is better for you. There are very few mm-hmm. exceptions to that rule. Um, if, if you're looking for a rule of thumb, that's a super easy one. Raw food is much more healthy for you. Um, nice. However, there's like a few minor exceptions. Like if you saute broccoli, then it's like there's more nutrients available. If you saute spinach, mm-hmm. if you massage your kale, like all these things, it makes it. Wait, I'm sorry. Yeah. If you do what? You massage your kale? Yeah, if you massage your kale. How do you, how, like, what is, what is <laughs> massaging kale? I'm picturing like a massage parlor. <laughs> For your kale with meditation sounds. Yeah, no, you got to get some hot rocks for your kale. You get like a salt steam. No, I'm kidding. No, it's just, it's kind of just what it (laughs) sounds like. You just like, you get your kale and you like crunch it around with your hands a little bit. You like, you know, you massage it. I don't know. You like, I don't know. It's You just like massage it with your fingers. Okay. Uh, Yeah, I've never done that with my kale, but I'm (laughs) going to do that. Get that uh, fresh massage. Fancy bougie kale. Exactly. No, it it sounds very bougie. You're right. You're totally right. Um, it sounds really bougie. <laughs> no, but it what it does is if you've ever had like raw kale that's like before it's been cooked or dressed or anything when it's like just fresh off the leaf, um, it's like super bitter. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and that's because the cellulose is really like thick, and so that cellulose is making it pretty bitter. But if you massage it and break it down, more of the nutrients become available, and also it becomes less bitter and more delicious. So massage your kale, everyone. It's really good for you. Eat your kale. Eat kale. Wow. Uh, that was a little bit of a tangent, but I think it was a great one because now I know how to make my kale better. I'm very pro-kale. Kale gets such a bad rap and I'm like not here for it. Okay. How do you feel about those shirts that like Whole Foods sells that has like kale written in like a collegiate font? So it looks like it's a, a college t-shirt, but it just says kale. I know those shirts and I am anti those shirts because I try to not buy my clothing from large corporations. Um, but other than that, I have no problem with them except for that one thing. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, fair, very fair. I'm also like pretty anti-Amazon, so. So if we're like buying like Etsy kale shirts, this is uh, good in your book. (laughs) Yeah, totally. We should make some kale merch. Oh my God, I love kale so much, Catherine. It's really good for you, everyone. It's really good. It's anti-carcinogenic. Did you know that? I did not know that. It's very good for you. Very pro-kale. That is what I look for. Catherine, I love having you on the episode. I love just sitting and chatting with a friend about things that I love. I also love that. And do you know what our listeners can do if they want to sit and chat with a friend about this podcast and other things that they love? What? They can share this podcast with their friends. Um, I know that having a podcast buddy is one of my favorite things, and I'm sure you know that as well because I text you at least five <laughs> times a week, if at not least. more, about the podcasts we both listen to. <laughs> so I think it's a really great experience. And if you share this podcast with a friend, um, it helps us grow. It helps your friend discover some fun new podcasts, and you get a podcast buddy or a fun farming friend and it's a win-win-win yeah so pick one episode maybe this episode maybe a past episode that you really enjoyed and you can share it with a friend and just have something in common that you can well they're your friends so you probably have a lot of stuff in common but have, have something, something that common. you can talk about with them something new in common something if you ever just wanted to text them on a tuesday afternoon and didn't know what to text them about. Now you can be like, hey, have you listened to the new One to Grow On episode? Totally. We also want to give a huge thank you to Lindsay, who is our Starfruit Level patron. Thank you, Lindsay. You are the best. You are the stars of our heart and the starfruit, I guess, as well. <laughs> you are our number one fun <laughs> farming friend. Number one. All right, let's get back to the episode. All righty, let's do it. Do you have any other questions about processed food? I do, actually. So we've talked about processed food. Yeah, is it inherently bad? Is it not? Blah, blah, blah. My question is, a lot of the processes we have talked about that lead to food being processed are stuff that I could technically do at my house if I was not so lazy. So I want to know if, for example... I go down to the store, I grind up some chickpeas, and I add in olive oil and salt and make hummus. Is that going to be more healthful than if I just go to the grocery store and buy some hummus? Well, I think they might ask you to leave at the store if you go to the store and make hummus there. (laughs) Okay, I'm sorry. If I go to the store, buy the ingredients to make hummus, then transport it back to my house and make it in the comfort of my kitchen. Yeah. So that's a good question. 
So hummus is a pretty, for those of you who don't know, and if you don't know, get on it because hummus is great. Do not be sleeping on this amazing dip. Hummus is incredible. I eat it for dinner every night. You do not. Do you really? Well, okay, not. I don't eat it for dinner every night, but sometimes, Hallie, sometimes I'm cooking and I... I'm hungry while I'm cooking, so I'll just get some hummus out and some baby carrots and just eat that. <laughs> yeah. No, it's good. But then I'll, I'll also cook a real dinner. Did I ever tell you about the first time I ate hummus? No. So I was in Israel. Wait, hold up. You were, like, what, 15 when you went to Israel? Yeah. You made it a decade and a okay. half on this planet without eating hummus. I mean, okay, we're from Texas, Catherine. We have to be real that, like, hummus was not yeah. abound in the early 2000s in central Texas. Like, we cannot lie about that. You know, that is true. I know. It's super true. And my parents were like, they didn't really eat that much hummus. I was a bit of a picky kid. It just never happened. Anyways, I was in Israel and I was like Mm -hmm. in some building. I don't remember where I was. And there was just like a dip on a plate with some crackers. And I was like, don't mind if I do. And then I was like, oh my (laughs) God. Like my whole world changed. And for the rest like of the week and a half that I was in Israel, I would just always have hummus for everything. We'd like go into a restaurant and I'd sit down and be like, um, do you have hummus? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, can I just have a bowl of hummus for lunch, please? I'll just have a bowl of hummus. It'd be fine. I mean, relatable. I still do that. Although I do have to say, there is a Mediterranean place across the street from my work, uh-huh. and they will give you, it's like Chipotle, but for Mediterranean food, and they'll just give you like a ton of hummus, and it is literally the best thing in the universe. That's awesome. Also, I want to say we're not being paid by like big hummus. <laughs> the hummus industry is not supported this podcast. <laughs> This episode brought to you by the chickpea industry. No, not really. I wish. Can you imagine? Uh, I wish. Um, where were we? What was the question? I was like so lost in our. Oh yes, the question is: If I may come in, oh yeah, in my kitchen, is it better than store bought? So it depends on where you buy your hummus and what brand and like some other factors. If you buy hummus at the store, sometimes they'll have more salt because that means it can last longer or they'll have more preservatives. And if you're thinking about processed foods on like a spectrum, the more salt and the more preservatives it has, like the lower down on the rungs of like if primary is number one and like tertiary is number three, it's like closer down towards like the bottom half of like it's more processed. Um, Okay. But you can also – you can buy like locally made hummus that's like doesn't have that much salt and it's pretty much the same as you would make it – Except for there's, I guess there is this one thing, which is if you buy it commercially made, then it will be like really pureed. It will be really smooth. Um, whereas if you make it okay. at home, it will have some delicious little chickpea chunks and that'll probably have like a bit more fiber. And fiber is not really something that we talk about often with processed foods. And actually, according to emerging research, it's like a lot more of an issue than we give it credit for. And I'm not saying that like, If you make your hummus at home, you're going to have, like, a significantly more amount of fiber. But because you'll have those chunks and it's not really, like, pureed perfectly, there is, like, necessarily, like, the particles that you will be eating will be larger, which can be really significant. If if you eat something that's raw, then you're your gut biome is having to do a lot of work and it's having to exercise and it's getting all this yummy fiber and it's really good for you. And there's some emerging research that's showing that if you eat more processed foods, the particle size that you eat is smaller. And so your gut biome is not doing as much. Um, it's also 
typically like more pasteurized. Um, so like your gut biome isn't just getting as many of like the little other microbes to eat. Mm-hmm. So like people's gut biomes are like degrading and they're not doing as well, which can be kind of problematic because oh, wow. that's like a big part of your immune system. Yeah. And um, I actually read a study that said that your gut biome is linked to like Alzheimer's and memory loss. Oh, I don't know anything about that. But yeah, it is. I mean, it's a really important thing. And the less that people eat raw food and the less that people eat unpasteurized food. So like if you go to the farmer's market and you buy an apple, it's not going to like go through the same process of sanitization that like a grocery store apple is. Mm-hmm. And that might not make a huge difference. But if your whole life you're just eating like processed pizza and processed cereal and like processed peanut butter and like all these things that are pre-processed and like sanitized for you and the molecules are all broken down super small so your gut doesn't have anything to chew on then eventually like mm-hmm. they're not going to be as happy down there and that's like half of you that's like half of yourself is for in sure. your gut biome so so it um this might be a weird metaphor but it kind of reminds me of like the difference between walking to work versus taking an uber where if you walk to work you get that little bit of exercise that adds up but if you take an uber every day or a car i forget people can drive yeah. people who don't live in chicago and can park by their work yeah no that's kind of true because also like if you walk to work then like someone's gonna cough on you and you're gonna get like that gross nasty stuff on you but you might not get sick you might just like oh yeah get a stronger immune system versus like if you're in an uber and he like lysols his car every day there's like no there's no microbes around you to like get in there and like mess with your immune system to make you stronger so it's a yeah it's a good metaphor that sounds great i am my commute i'm generally packed in on a train car with like there you go people so i get uh, that immune system girl system's gonna be a superstar (laughs) awesome well if you don't have any more questions then i think we are about done yeah i think i gotta go um eat some hummus real quick Thanks for listening to this episode of One to Grow On. If you'd like to support the show, you can write and review us on iTunes or consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com slash one to grow on pod. If you'd like to connect with us, find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at one to grow on pod. The show is hosted by me, Hallie Casey, and Chris Casey. It is produced by me, Catherine RJ, and by Hallie Casey. Our music is Something Elated by Broke for Free, and our show art is by Mariah Coley. Be sure to check out the next episode in two weeks. But until then, keep on growing. Bye, everybody.